This week in automotive history on the Car Tech Garage. I'm excited. Me too. What do we got? These these nice history pieces that you have put together. Uh, I'm extremely excited. <laughs> I didn't put about. them together. I'm just regurgitating what happened. Well, you know, you're you're in abundance uh, when it comes to history. So you know, I always learn something. I I love when you do history because I kind of just let you do your thing and and pick, and I get to learn. I yeah. hope there's not a quiz after this. I just love going into encyclopedia <laughs> mode. Hey, well, let's go ahead and kick it off. Taking it way back, 146 years ago. This was February 7th in 1875. Yataro Iwasaki. You know exactly who that is, right? Yeah, definitely. Exactly who he is. Yeah, he just died at 50 years old then. Oh, wow. Yeah, so why are we we talking about a guy that died at 50, 146 years ago? Because he was the founder of Mitsubishi. Who? I'm just kidding. Anyway, he died in (laughs) Tokyo. But the name Mitsubishi... Um, actually comes from this man here. It was a, uh, in, in, in Japanese, Mitsu is, um, you know, basically a compound word. It, Mitsu means three. Hishi literally translates to water chestnut. Okay. Now, why does this make sense? Anyways, <laughs> well, the water chestnut is often denoted in Japanese as a diamond or a rhombus. Mm-hmm. Okay. A little diamond. And that's where the three diamonds and the emblem of Mitsubishi come from. That Mitsubishi, makes sense. three water chestnut, three, water and that's chestnut. why you have that little three diamonds, Diamond Star Motors. <gasps> My mind is blown. Indeed. Now, of course, this was long before Mitsubishi had actually started manufacturing cars, but Yataro Iwasaki was a great businessman, and through his work and relationships with the government, he was able to start a massive industrial company that would later be known as Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. Okay, because they they don't just make cars. They, they make a lot of things. A lot of stuff, yeah. Anyway, all of us car guys do have Yotaro to thank for the Mitsubishi name and all of its best cars. The Eclipse, the 3000 GT, the FTO, even though it didn't come to the States, and the Crown Jewel, the Mitsubishi Lancer Evo. That is one of my favorites. I'm not a huge fan of Mitsubishi, but the Evo, it, it it's a nice car. I mean, it's the car. It is. It definitely is. As I said, I'm just not a Mitsubishi guy. Even working Get on out. the regular cars. Get what? out. I, if I, out. an Evo popped up in front of me, I would buy it. There's no question. Yeah, dri- yeah, go drive an Evo 8 and then like a blob I STI and see which one you like better. I'd probably pick the Subaru. Not going to lie. 110 years ago, February 8th, 1911. Why do I talk about all these old guys? Because it's interesting and because there's context to be had from it as to why things are the way they are today. But 110 years ago, Mr. Charles F. Kettering installed his reduced size starter generator in a Cadillac and conducted the first successful tests on the system. And a year later, he was actually issued the last of his patents for it. Now, the cool part about this, it was called the Delco system. Mm-hmm. That's actually where AC Delco comes from. AC Delco is now the OE manufacturer for a lot of GM parts, mm-hmm. um, or at least aftermarket OE manufacturer. But his Delco system was a starter and generator and lighting system all in one. This is basically the whole electrical system. Yeah, the you, whole charging and starting system test, just as we have today. He concepted and patent, patented what would become later our you know alternators or generators for the car, mm-hmm. our starting system. And I've actually got a picture right here. You guys can look it up. It is basically this little box that contains all of that stuff together. Now, the cool part was um, he was actually contracted by the president of Cadillac because the president of Cadillac at the time 
had a friend that was killed by one of his cars because back then you had to hand crank the engine, which is extremely dangerous. And you, and you for had obvious to fight reasons. through the compression, and as soon as the engine caught, it would take that handle that you were cranking and spin it around at engine speed. So if you were in the way of it. You were getting hit, and this particular guy got hit in the face, broke his jaw, and died from an infection. So, uh, what initially happened? The the owner or the the president of Cadillac vowed that Cadillac would have the first full self starter system. So this would never happen to another Cadillac owner ever again. Which is amazing to think, you know, nowadays that's just kind of a given. You get in a car and it just turn the key and it turns on. Yeah, you even go buy like a four wheeler or a dirt bike. You're like, I got to kickstart this thing. Yeah, what the heck? <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. We've, we've gotten really fortunate for that we system. Have. Yeah, for all your turnkey solutions. <laughs> now you we've can thank even, Charles Kettering. We've even got push buttons. Yeah, absolutely. We've got remote start. I can start it from my phone now. I'm not going to lie. Obviously, I work on cars all the time, but when I, I have never had a like key fob for my car. You know, like one of those, you just have it on you, you press the start and it goes. I've always had keys. So there's times where I even leave the key fob in the cup holder of cars that we work on. And I forget, you know, as soon as I hop out of the car, I'm walking back with the paperwork going, man, I did it again. I, I do keep it with, with Ash's car all the time. My wife has a 19 RAV4 and it's, <laughs> I always forget the key yeah, in my pocket like, all the time. Anyway. All right. So just 43 years ago, February 9th and 1978. So not very, very long ago, but, um, a guy that had been around in racing for a long time, Mr. Hans Stuck, died in West Germany at 77 years old. Now, everybody's heard of Hans Stuck in one way or the other. Um, he also had a son that competed in racing for a little bit, but Stuck's experience with car racing actually started way back in 1922. Um, he had a job at, a, at, his, at his family's farm. He would bring milk into the town of Munich as fast as he could. So that kind of uh, led to his love of cars and speed. So he ended up taking up shortly after hill climb racing. And the first hill climb race that he entered, he won in 1923. A few years later, you know, after a year as a, a privateer for Austro Daimler, he ended up becoming a works driver for them in 1927, doing hill climbs, doing circuit races. He actually appeared in the German Grand Prix. Um, but in 1931, the Daimler company left racing and Stuck eventually ended up uh, driving a Mercedes-Benz SSKL. Now, the Mercedes-Benz SSK was like the premier race car at the time. Um, so he excelled in that. 1933, he ended up meeting uh, Mr. Adolf Hitler, who he actually met on a, a hunting trip in 1925. But even though he was a terrible guy, he introduced him to Ferdinand Porsche. And Ferdinand Porsche was working with Auto Union at the time, you know, making race cars, mm -hmm. you know, to try to put Germany on the wrap for, for racing. And um, his experience with hill climb racing, coupled with the fact that he was in the auto union car, which was designed by Ferdinand Porsche, and frankly, one of the most advanced cars at the time, it had a rear engine, almost 500 horsepower. He was untouchable, especially on all of the uh, all the hill climb races. That's that's one of my favorite. I love hill climb racing. It, it just takes things to a, a whole new level of, you know, shooting up a hill as fast as you possibly can and trying not to fall off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really does take some grapefruits. Yes, <laughs> but, yes, grapefruits. <laughs> so his career with Auto Union, again, very, very successful. In 1934, he actually won the German, Swiss, and Czechoslovakian Grand Prix. Um, 1935, he won the, Itali the Italian Grand Prix, and he still won all of his hill climb wins and everything else. And, of course, his son went on to become a racing driver. He competed in F1 racing for a short period of time in the 70s. Um, he never really gained the success and notoriety of his father, though. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he still yeah. got to drive for Brabham for a little while. Uh, he drove a Brabham BT45, really fast car. So when it someone, still ran in the family. Yeah. When you when you 
standards are set that high, it's, it's kind of hard to beat. Big shoes to fill mm-hmm. indeed. All right, we'll go ahead and move it up a little bit more. February 10th, 1989, 32 years ago. You ready for this one? I'm ready. The Mazda MX-5 Miata oh, was unveiled no. at $14,000. You could have the best vehicle ever made. For anybody that doesn't know, hasn't listened to the radio show, this is a feud Wesley and I have that the Miata is the best car ever, and I highly Shut up, disagree. Max. <laughs> the MX-5's first generation sold over 400,000 units from uh, 89 to 97. So it came with a 1.6 liter, ended up going to a 1.8 liter. Um, now, the Miata was launched at a very, very pivotal time. Not a lot of people thought it was going to work. But here's the thing. But. People <laughs> wanted a tried and true sports car. One with performance that would knock their socks off. Now, that's not exactly what they got, but <laughs> the Miata was launched at a time when the production of small roadsters had like totally come to an end because just a decade earlier, you could buy an MGB, a Triumph TR7, a mm-hmm. Spitfire, a Fiat Spider. All of those were available. And the Miata, um, of course, came at just the right time. After all of those had been gone, people had been missing their little roadsters and they wanted another one. And Mazda absolutely delivered. So what, did Mazda just like pick it up out of the trash out of all these other cars that have been around for years and everybody kind of, they died off and Mazda was like, oh, this, this looks good. Well, Mazda saw an opening because they they had their RX-7 (laughs) out at the time already. And the RX-7 was a bit more of a premium car. So they wanted one that was going to be, you know, more typical, you know, the inline four layout, something very simple and cheap and light. And um, in fact, the, uh, the Mazda first generation MX-5 and the um, third generation RX-7 are actually really similar, um, you know, in terms of their body lines, their design. They're even of pretty similar size as well. They do look a lot alike. Yeah, everybody thinks the RX-7 is bigger until they see one next to Miata. I and then they really want an RX-7. With a Miata, for what you get, what you're paying for, with the size, power, everything, you do get a car that is extremely fun. I just don't think it's the best car ever. Thanks for admitting it. Thanks for admitting it. <laughs> I will take my Miata in my sun hat all day long. <laughs> so the Miata actually made car and drivers 10 best list 14 times, 14 times. And of course, you know, uh, in grassroots motorsports autocross, the Miata is totally dominant, totally dominant. And one of my favorite quotes about the Miata, it was actually written by Jeremy Clarkson. He wrote in 2009, the fact is if you want a sports car, the MX five is perfect. Nothing on the road will give you better value. Nothing will give you so much fun. The only reason I'm giving it five stars is because I can't give it 14. <laughs> I'm more impressed that he actually made that comment. I would think he he wouldn't have liked that car. I mean, he barely fits in it, but well, it's well, a great little I mean. car because <laughs> he knows what, what a driver's car is about. Now, I've got 16 different people in this room rolling their eyes at me right now, but the fact remains, I will always stick up for the Mazda Miata. All right, February are. 11th, 1932. 89 years ago, Ford, in a press release to the Detroit News, announced that they were building a new model with their revolutionary V8 engine. Now, Ford had not created the very first V8 engine. That belongs to a French engineer, which is another story. But it did make V8 power and durability available to the masses, even though it was only about 65 horsepower. That was still way more than pretty much any other road car you would Mm -hmm. see back in 1932. Of course, unless a Duesenberg rolled up, then you were definitely going to get gapped. <laughs> yeah, you were. But still, we, you know, we talked quite a bit about the Duesenberg. Oh, yeah. The Ford Flathead was a great engine. Mm-hmm. Exceptionally durable, durable, you know, side valve engine. It was just it just worked. Mm-hmm. It worked. It had great torque. They put it in all their trucks and everything. I mean, it was it was the workhorse of America for many, many years. And I think it kind of deserves an honorable mention. All right. So. 
February 12, 1908, 113 years ago, the now famous, although largely forgotten, New York to Paris race happened. Now, this was New York to Paris via Seattle and Japan. It was actually the longest motor race in history. So the race started at Times Square in New York City. Six vehicles entered the race, Germany, France, Italy, and the U.S. So um, Germany had a Protos, uh, Italy had a Zeust, um, France had three cars that I'm not going to try to remember the name of, and <laughs> America had a Thomas Flyer. So at 11.15 a.m., a gunshot signaled the start of the race. And ahead of the competitors were very, very few paved roads. I mean, it was, you know, many of the parts of the world, there were no roads at all. And um, oftentimes what these teams would do while, you know, in this race, they would find railroad tracks and drive their car along the railroad tracks just to get where they needed to go. Because apart from that, it was, you know, mountains and valleys and lions and tigers and bears galore. So they had to find a way ahead. Um so the American Thomas Flyer was actually in the lead crossing the United States. It arrived in San Francisco in 41 days. Now, this was a uh, fun fact, the first crossing Jeez. of the U.S. by an automobile in the wintertime. Pretty That's cool. 41 days? 41 days. I mean, right now it's what? If you, we wanted to drive to California, I think from Cincinnati. What, what is, what is the like record right now? Like, like, like 18 or 19 hours yeah. or something? I mean, it's in the 20 hour range yeah. of, of somebody shooting across. Of course, across. paved roadways. Yeah, paved <laughs> and, roadways. And 150 miles an hour. And some high technology. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Radar 41 days, I, I feel like I could jog that. Like Forrest Gump, I'm pretty sure beat that. <laughs> so, <laughs> and anyway, so... When they got to San Francisco, to San Francisco, they actually hopped on a boat. It took them to Valdez, Valdez, Alaska, and the Thomas crew basically got there, and it was like impossible conditions in Alaska. So they ended up rerouting them across the Pacific to Japan because they were supposed to make it through Alaska and then go into Siberia. But um, they ended up going to Japan, and then they trekked through Japan, hopped back on another boat. And then finally made their way into Siberia. And of course, then they made their way into Asia and Europe. But only three of the competitors actually made it past the Siberian wilderness. That was the Protos, the Zeus, and the Flyer. All of the French cars, they were out of there, right? They you know, probably had something else better to do, like eat snails or something. So the tundra of the Siberia was like an endless quandary, you know, with the, the spring thaw making progress really difficult. They were basically driving through muck, and they certainly weren't in four-liter Jeeps with 33s on them. So, you know, eventually once they made it closer to Europe, they, they started to find a few roads and got a little bit more momentum built up. But the Thomas actually arrived in Paris on July 30th, 1908. Um, it had covered 10,400 miles. So the Germans actually arrived in Paris four days earlier, but they had been penalized 30 days because they did not even go to Alaska. They opted not to and just assumed that everybody else was going to you know, basically cancel and, and fly out. They didn't ever thought that the Thomas flyer would still make it all the way to Paris. Um, so uh, what was it? I, I think they gave him the win by 26 days and uh, the winner, uh, the, the driver was George Schuster. He was the one that was driving the Thomas flyer. He was actually inducted into the automotive hall of fame in 2010. And that that same Thomas flyer is on display in Reno, Nevada at the national automobile automobile museum at the, uh, and the, the trophies actually there too. Mm -hmm. That's kind of cool. But anyway, I just, it, I don't understand in what right mind, you know, nowadays I could understand, you know, making a, a trip like that just with all of the technology that we have, you know, with, we could have an RV that's basically fully self-sufficient that could make it, or even, you know, something that could crawl through the mud. Why would you, 
want to make that trek. You well, that's know? the thing to prove that they could. The importance of this race cannot be overstated. It showed people that automobiles could be reliable, efficient, and you know a, a good thorough means of transport across anywhere. And not only that, it also you know everybody's seeing what they had to endure. They're like, hey, we should probably build some more roads too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that <laughs> makes make it a little bit easier. With it. Yeah. But, but it's just, it, that blows my mind, you know, just trying to... To race around the world in a car. Yeah. And, you know, very minimal technology at that time. You know, now I can at least, you know, maybe have a pop-up shower in my car if I, <laughs> if I really wanted to take a shower, you know. Oh, yeah, like the, the, the Vanagons or whatever they Yeah, yeah you're that, you're that or just have like a water tank in the trunk and at least you can take a nice little shower instead of going through the sort of Siberian wilderness and getting mauled by animals and there are holiday inns all over the place <laughs> i just hop on one of those you know, free breakfast continental breakfast there we go Con- 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 that's the kind of type of continental race i want continental I breakfast from holiday that. in holiday inn <laughs> all right we'll go ahead and move ahead this one's a little bit of a, a poke at something fun but uh february 13th 1968 53 years ago the lincoln continental mark three was introduced now i've got a bit of a beef with this car if you guys like the lincoln continental i'm sorry but the Mark III was a particularly terrible design. It sold so well, which was the funny part. But it was created when Lee Iacocca, which uh, at the time, uh, he was actually Ford's vice president. He hadn't yet gone to work for Chrysler. Um, he basically directed the design president of Ford to, and I quote, put a Rolls-Royce grill on a Thunderbird. That's so Lincoln good. Continental Mark III mm-hmm. was produced. <laughs> that I... <laughs> Can see totally that makes 100% exactly. sense now. And it's, it's and kind it of hideous. Oh, boat. it was a, a boat. boat. Yeah, an absolute boat. Yeah, you put an anchor on the thing and it probably would go through the sea. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> go to the bottom of the sea. That's it where they all belong. The yeah, exactly. But in theory, if you put a little hole on the bottom, I think it would, it would make a trek. <laughs> it was that big. A little hole on the bottom. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that was the car that they actually used to carry over other cargo. So. <laughs> The other thing that Iacocca said was, and here's another excerpt from from something, but he said, we brought out the Mark III in April 1968, and in its very first year, it outsold the Cadillac Eldorado, which had been our long-range goal. For the next five years, we had a field day, in part because the car had been developed on the cheap. We did the whole thing for $30 million, a bargain basement price, and because we were able to use existing parts and designs. So, like, it was a remarkable statement from an automotive executive at the time. And this wasn't the first time manufacturers went into the parts bin to pull something out of their hat. But it was the first time that the execs openly admitted it. And the Rolls-Royce grill was a blatant ripoff. It was. I mean, especially when you're talking Rolls-Royce, you know, that grill is probably worth more than my car. (laughs) When it comes to a Rolls-Royce. You're like, are you kidding? Now, Lee Iacocca was a marketing genius, but... You know, I don't really know how well the moral line falls. Yeah, no, that's not something you admit. <laughs> as terrible as to say, you just don't admit that you basically found a bucket of spare parts and yeah, the back. I'm gonna go and, put a prancing horse on my Camry and see if I can go sell it for an extra K. Yeah, you know that seems that seems logical. Anyway, thanks so much everybody for listening to this week in automotive history. Yeah. Of course, we'll be back next week as well. Yeah, keep cars interesting at the Car Tech Garage. This podcast has been brought to you by Almer's Auto Care in Cincinnati, Ohio, providing service beyond compare since 1936.